0: Chapter 45 of Lover or Friend by Rosa Carey. Audrey receives a telegram. One fourth of life is intelligible, the other three fourths is unintelligible darkness, and our earliest duty is to cultivate the habit of not looking round the corner. Mark Rutherford. Thou shalt lose thy life and find it, thou shalt boldly cast it forth, and then back again receiving, know it in its endless worth. Archbishop Trench. Audrey thought it was the longest summer term that she had ever known. Never in her life had weeks or months passed so slowly. To all outward appearance, she was well and cheerful, and spent her time much as usual, helping her mother and visiting her poor people in the morning, and in the afternoon attending cricket matches or playing tennis at the various garden parties of the season. The nine days' wonder about the Blake's sudden disappearance was over, and the Rutherford ladies no longer whispered strange tales into each other's ears each more marvellous than the last. It was said and believed by more than one person that Audrey's engagement had been broken off because Dr. Ross had discovered that there was hereditary insanity in the Blake family. Indeed, one lady, a notorious gossip, and who was somewhat deaf, was understood to say that she had heard Mrs. Blake was at that moment in a private lunatic asylum. That Audrey Ross did not take her broken engagement much to heart was the general opinion in Motherford. Would a girl play tennis? dance, or organize picnics, they said, if she were languishing in heart-sickness, and there was certainly no appearance of effort in the readiness with which Audrey responded to any plan that her young friends proposed. As they remarked, Audrey Ross was always up to farting, but Michael Burnett could have told them a different story if they had asked him. Audrey's sweet, sound disposition made her peculiarly alive to a sense of duty. One must think of other people, always. "'and under all circumstances,' she said to him "'when her trouble was fresh upon her, "'and he knew that she was only acting after her words, "'she would play because other people wished to play, "'not because her heart was in it. "'During his brief visits to Woodcut, "'they were always together, "'and more than once he told himself "'that he could see a great change in her. "'She had at times a tired, burdened look "'as though weary thoughts were habitual to her, "'but she never spoke to him of Cyril "'or questioned him in any way. He would tell her unasked about Molly, and now and then he would drop a word casually about Cyril. I met Blake the other day. He would say, "I think he looks better, though he says the hot weather tries him. He is getting on with his work and appears to like it." Or another time, I dined with Unwin last week. He and Blake seem to hit it off famously. Unwin says he has far more discrimination and intelligence than other young men of his age, and that for steadiness and application he might be fifty, but he thinks. He ought to take more exercise. His hard work and the heat together are making him thin. Audrey remembered this speech of Michael's, as a month later she sat on the Whitby Sands. She had yielded to Geraldine's persuasion to accompany them to the seaside. Dr. Ross and his wife were paying visits in Cumberland. Michael was in North Wales with an artist friend, and Audrey had accepted her sister's invitation very willingly. Both Percival and Geraldine were very kind to her, she thought. They let her wander about alone and do as she liked, and they were always ready to plan something for her enjoyment. A drive or a sail, or a day on the moors. Audrey liked being with them, and baby Leonard was more fascinating than ever. Yet it may be doubted if she would not have been happier at Rutherford. The absence of all duties, of any settled employment, tried her. A holiday, to be thoroughly enjoyed, must be attended with a disengaged mind, and with a certain freedom from worry and this was not possible with Audrey. She would talk to her sister cheerfully, or play with Leonard, and she was an intelligent companion for Mr. Harcourt when they took long walks together. But in her moments of solitude, when she roamed alone over the yellow sands, with the fresh salt wind blowing in her face, her thoughts would be sad enough as she thought of Cyril and his hot London lodging. "'Oh, my darling, if you could only be with me and fill this wind,' she would think. "'with a great rush of pity and tenderness. "'If I could only take your place a little and bear things for you.' "'And the sense that she could do nothing for him "'would lie like a load on her heart. "'I think Audrey is getting over her trouble,' "'Geraldine said one day to her husband. "'Baby is doing her good, "'and really when she's playing with him "'she seems just like her dear old self.' "'Of course she will get over it,' "'returned Mr. Hogarth impatiently. "'All girls do.' I tell you what, Jerry, when we get back to Hillside, we'll have Graham down to stop with us. Oh, did you mean Lionel Graham all the time? returned Geraldine, opening her eyes very widely. Is he the man you've always wanted for Audrey? He is nice, of course, all the Grahams are nice, but he is dreadfully ugly. Nonsense, my love. Graham, ugly, with that fine head of his. I tell you the girl is lucky who gets such a clever fellow. I recollect he was rather struck with her last spring. We will have him down and see if they can take to each other. But Percy, dear, you forget Audrey declares she is still engaged to Cyril Blake. Duff and nonsense, replied her husband, waxing exceedingly irate at this remark. I wonder at you, I do indeed, repeating anything so ridiculous. has not Blake given her up, A very proper of him too, and has not your father forbidden her to have anything more to do with him, my love, with all my respect for your judgment, I must differ from you. Audrey is not the girl to propose anything so indelicate, so altogether wanting in propriety as to thrust herself upon a man who very properly declines to marry her. No, no, we will have Graham down. He is a first-rate fellow, and when he makes up his mind to a thing, he sticks at nothing. That's the way to win a girl, eh, Jerry?' And Geraldine blushed beautifully as she recalled Percival's bold wooing. "'Well, do as you like,' she said tranquilly. "'But I don't believe Audrey will look at him.' And then she made signs to the nurse to bring her the baby and Mr. Harcourt forgot his matchmaking schemes as he played with his son and heir. Audrey was the only one who was glad when the time came for them to return to Rutherford. Her mother's face was a delicious sight to her, and as she presided again at her little tea-table, she gave vent to a fervent, Oh, how glad I am to be at home again. It sounds as though you have not enjoyed your holiday, Audrey, and yet Geraldine was so pleased to have you. But I have enjoyed myself, Mother dear. Whitby is beautiful, and I did just what I liked engaged in Percival, could not have been kinder or more thoughtful. And then Leonard is such a darling. You look all the better for your change, but you are still a little thin, love, returned her mother, scrutinizing her daughter rather narrowly. But Audrey disclaimed this charge. If she were thin, it was because Percival had taken her such long walks, he declared. But she was not thin. She was very well, only she was tired of her idleness, and meant to work hard. I wish Michael were at home, she went on. He has returned from Wales, but he means to stay for a week or two in South Audley Street. Kester is with him. Home is never quite the same without Michael, she finished, looking round her as though she missed something. Michael had really stayed up in London for Kester's sake, but he was glad of any excuse that kept him away from Woodcott. When Kester's visit was over, he went with him to Victoria and saw him off. He had some business in Aldersgate Street, and he thought he might as well take a circle, train and go on. Michael always hated business in the city. The noise of the crowded thoroughfares jarred on him, and he thought he might as well get it over. He had finished his business and was walking down Cheapside, when, to his surprise, he saw Cyril Blake coming out of a shop. Cyril seemed equally surprised at this unexpected rencontre. I know you haunt Cromwell and Exhibition Roads," he said in rather an amused tone, but I always understood you shunned the city. So I do, but one may have business there sometimes, returned Michael, linking his arm in Cyril's. But the two had grown fast friends in spite of the disparity in their ages. "'I suppose it would be inquisitive on my part to ask what brings you here at this time in the afternoon.' "'Not at all. I have only been to my tailor's,' replied Cyril, smiling. "'I am not a swell like you, and city prices suit my pocket better than West End ones. I was feeling rather dilapidated, so as Unwin dismissed me early this afternoon, I thought I would attend to my outer man.' "'You would have been wiser to have run down to Tiddington and had to pull up the river.' You look as though you want fresh air, Blake. I don't know about your outer man, as you call it, but I must say you look uncommonly seedy. Do I? Oh, am I all right? He added hastily. I have not been used to spending summer in town. How did you get on in North Wales, Burnett? I was never there, but I hear the scenery is beautiful. So it is. You should see some of Jack Cooper's sketches. They will give an idea of the place. And Michael launched into an enthusiastic description of a thunderstorm he had witnessed under Snowdon. I took Booty to pay his devoirs at the tomb of Bethgelert. On the whole, I think Booty enjoyed his trip as much as we did. Michael had so much to say about his trip that they found themselves on the platform before he had half-finished. It was half-past five by this time, and a good many businessmen were returning home. The station was somewhat crowded, but as they piloted their way through the knots of passengers, Michael still talked on. Cyril had listened at first with interest. He was becoming much attached to his new friend and though his masculine undremonstrativeness forbade him to say much about his feelings, his gratitude to Michael was deep and intense, and amid his own troubles he had an unselfish satisfaction in thinking that, whatever his own future might be, Kester's was safe. By and by his attention began to flag. He was watching an old man who stood at a little distance from them at the edge of the platform. He was a very dirty old man. And at any other time his appearance would certainly not have inspired Cyril with the wish to look at him a second time, but he was attracted by his swaying, lurching movements, which would have conveyed to any practised eye that the old reprobate was in an advanced stage of intoxication. What if he were to lose his balance and fall over the edge of the platform? The down train was momentarily expected. Cyril could bear it no longer. Excuse me, Binette, he said hastily. That whole fellow looks as though he might topple over any minute and before Michael could understand what he meant, he had dived across the platform. The whistle of the advancing train sounded at that moment, and almost simultaneously there was a shriek of terror from some woman standing at the farther end. "'Poor wretch! He has done for himself!' Michael heard someone say. "'You ain't clean over!' Michael was slightly short-sighted, and a crowd of people intercepted his view, and he could not at once make his way through them. He could not see Cyril, but the surging excited throng, all veering towards the end of the platform, told him that some serious accident had occurred. Blake must have been an eyewitness of the whole thing, he thought, as he tried to elbow his way through horrified men and hysterical women. If he could only find him. And then a very stout man in a navvy's garb blocked up his passage. Is the poor old man killed? Michael asked, but he feared what the answer would be, whilst the grey-headed sinner summoned in this terrible manner to the bar of his offended judge. Lord bless you, sir, returned the man, He is as right as possible. The train did not touch him. It is the other poor fellow that is done for, I expect. Me and my mate have just got him out. A sudden, horrible, almost sickening sensation of fear came to Michael. Oh my God! Not that! Not that! Burst from his lips as he literally fought his way down the platform. Let me pass, sir! I believe I know him! He cried hoarsely, and the man, in pity to his white face, drew back. There was a motionless figure lying on the bench at the other end. "'surrounded by porters and strangers. "'Michael darted towards it, "'but when he caught sight of the face, "'he uttered a groan. "'Alas, alas! "'He knew it too well. "'Give me place,' he said almost fiercely. "'A dead man is my friend!' "'He is not dead, Burnett,' observed a gentleman "'who was supporting Cyril's head. "'But he is badly hurt, poor fellow. "'We must get him away at once.' "'Thank heaven it is you, Abercrombie,' "'returned Michael excitedly. "'He is safe with you.' than with any man alive. But Dr. Abercrombie shook his head gravely. My carriage is outside, and it is at your service, he said. And for the matter of that, so am I. Let me give these men directions how to move him. Then Michael stood aside, while the doctor issued his commands. Cyril had not regained full consciousness, but as Dr. Abercrombie placed himself beside him and applied remedies from time to time, a low moan now and then escaped from his lips. Michael, who had to sit with the coachman, thought that the long drive would never end, and yet Dr. Abercrombie drove good horses. It seemed hours before they reached Mortimer Street, and the strain on his nerves made him look so ghastly as he went into the house to prepare Mrs. Blake that she uttered a shriek as soon as she saw his face. "'You've come to tell me my boy is dead!' she exclaimed, catching hold of him. "'No, he is not dead, but he is badly hurt, Abercrombie says. Let me go, Mrs. Blake.' You want my help to carry him in? Is there a room ready? Molly, look after your mother. And Michael sped on his sad errand. Do not let anyone in, Burnett, while I examine him. Lock the door. And Michael obeyed the doctor's orders, though an agonized voice outside entreated admittance. Michael thought the doctor's examination would never end, but by and by he came up to Michael and drew him aside. You wish another opinion, Burnett, he asked abruptly, but it is kinder to tell you but the thing is helpless. Good heavens, Abercrombie! Do you mean he will not live? Only a few hours. He is hurt internally. They were both down on the rails, you know. I saw the whole thing, and he flung out the old man with one hand. I never saw anything so splendidly done. But the wheel of the engine caught him, and before they could stop the train, the mischief was done. Will he suffer? Can nothing be done for him? Abercrombie, I would give half my fortune to save the life of that man. He will not suffer long returned Dr. Abercrombie kindly. He was a rough, hard-featured Scotchman, but no man had a better heart, as Michael knew. I will do all I can for him, Burnett, for his own sake as well as yours. I think he wants to speak to you, but he cannot talk much. It is agony to him. And Michael stepped up to the bed. In the emergency he had regained his old calmness of manner, and as Cyril's eyes were fixed on his face, he bent over him and said gently, Do not speak, my dear fellow. I know what you wish to say. I will telegraph for her at once. Cyril's damp, cold hand closed over his. Thanks. Thanks. That is what I wanted. She would like it, and it will do no harm. The last few words seemed intended for a question, and Michael answered without hesitation. Harm. She would never forgive us if we did not send for her. Then a faint light came into Cyril's eyes. I hope for her sake I shall not suffer, but it will soon be over. I heard him say so. He seemed to speak with difficulty. Don't look so sorry about it, Bennett. It is much better so. And the poor old man was saved. Oh. That expression of pain, wrung unwillingly from his lips, drew the doctor to him, and he made a sign to Michael to leave them. An hour later, Audrey received the following telegram. An accident. Cyril Blake, badly hurt. Condition critical. Come at once. We'll meet the last train at King's Cross.